Hi, I'm Dennis Silvers along with uh, Amanda Robertson, and we're here for the Vegas Sand Trap, and this is part two of our special guest known to millions of people from his show on the Golf Channel, Mr. Peter Kessler. Um, Peter, real quick, I wanted to jump into, you know, you have done so many interviews with some of the greats of all time. What do you think has allowed you to connect so well with them and allow them to trust you in these interviews? What was it about you that made it easy for them? He paid them. <laughs> well, yeah, that probably wouldn't have worked either, right? But, you know, when I was when I was about 13, somebody gave me Bobby Jones's first autobiography down the fairway. And when he wrote that, he was only 24 years old, and that was in 1926. And that year, he became the first person to win the U.S. Open and the British Open in the course of the same season. And then he wrote this autobiography, and he had a private printing done of 300 copies, which I actually have one of, which is a good story as well. And I fell in love with golf history and I fell in love with the way that Jones would evoke time and place. Right. I I fell in love with the way that he described his emotions in playing golf. And he, he was like the rest of us in terms of the way the game tortured him, even though what flowed from his golf clubs were essentially an endless, perfect series of strikes. And at that point, for some reason... Uh, falling in love with Jones and, and falling in love with golf history, I started to read every single thing I could get my hands on. And I didn't know anybody else who had any interest in golf whatsoever in terms of anything outside of playing the game. And so as a teenager, I had my parents subscribe to Golf Digest and to Golf World, and, and I went into bookstores and I went into libraries. And so from the time I was 13 until I started at the Golf Channel when I was 42, so that's a long period of time, I probably read about golf in some form or another three or four days a week for two or three hours a day wow. to the point oh, where impressive. I, I, I had a photographic memory at the time, and so I was able to see specific pages and passages in books in oh. my mind's eye when I wanted to. So when... Before I got to the Golf Channel, I had done a lot of acting in high school and college. I did community theater with my daughter. I worked on Wall Street as a public speaker, so I was very comfortable about being in front of a crowd. I learned how, when I was a public speaker, to keep things brief, unlike my answers that I'm giving you. Today. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, I, might, I don't want to say... Not looking, but you're not looking, you're no. not looking for yes or no's. No, or but I, d I don't want you, my shirt to go out of style you, either by the time you finish. Right, well, hang in. Right. And so, I, I, when I was 35, I decided I was going to leave Wall Street, and I decided I would do something with my voice, and that I would learn to do voiceovers, and one happy thing led to the next, and I became, within a couple of years, the voice of HBO Sports, and I narrated from 1990 through 1995 all of their documentaries, and there was a guy there who I narrated documentaries for who loved golf and had no place to play, and I started to bring him out with me, and over time, my knowledge of golf started to seep out. I would talk about certain situations on the golf course or a player's name would come up, and 
he realized I knew a lot about golf. And Mm -hmm. at that point, probably there weren't three or four other people who knew as much about golf history, its championships, its origins, its players, its results, its trends, its rules, than I did. And he became the guy, this fellow at HBO Sports, who was hired to hire all of the people for the Golf Channel who were going to be on air. And at first, they didn't want to hire me because I hadn't been on camera. So they said, all right, well, if he knows enough about golf, we'll take a chance on him. And again, this fellow said, but he's done theater. He's been in front of people. He knows he's not going to be uncomfortable. So they started to call me, and this is before they hired me. They used to call me at 3 in the morning, and they would test my golf knowledge. And, and of course, in those days, in 94, the summer of 94, before the Golf Channel went on the air in January of 95, you know, there were no computers to look things up on, and you couldn't, there was no Google. So if you got awakened at 3 in the morning and asked a golf (laughs) question, either you knew the answer or you didn't know the answer. And they tried to fool me. And they said to me, I'll, I'll tell you the first question they gave me, which was, and this one's for you, Amanda, who was the first famous female golfer? Think about it for a second. First famous female golfer. Can I make a guess? Sure. I would say Babe Saharius. Now, she was one of the first famous professional female golfers. Oh, oh I am Okay. Okay. The first oh, yeah, famous female golfer was actually Mary, Queen of Scots, yes. in the 1500s. Wow. And she was, she was caught playing golf the day after her husband, Lord Darnley, was murdered. And eventually, for a number of reasons, she was beheaded. But one of them was because she had shown a wanton and careless disregard for life by playing the game the day after her husband's murder. How fascinating. I I knew that was the right answer. They had to go back and check. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And and there was nothing I didn't know at that particular point. That is, is, what a fantastic story. And the last question that they asked me was, um, who was Sam Parks, Jr.? And I knew more about Sam Parks Jr. than his mother did. He won the 1935 U.S. Open at Oakmont. He was a 75 shooter. And he was the first guy to pace off yardages. He spent a few months before the Open at Oakmont that he lived very close to pacing off yardages from trees to the to the beginning of greens. He would pace off how deep a green was. He would do all of the things that the yardage books have now. And other guys were given credit for being the first, but he was the first. He and Sam first. figured that 75s would win the U.S. Open that year. And sure enough, he shot the 75s and he won the wow. U.S. Open. And the next day they offered me the job. And so... What To answer your question, because I wanted to bring it to that point, which was once I, I started interviewing players on Monday nights, I would spend the previous week, starting on, say, a Tuesday morning, I would just put out a legal yellow pad, and by the next Monday, I would probably have about 100 questions. So by Monday morning of the show... I would cull the list down to 20 questions, and I was so well prepared that not only, and and was so with my photographic memory, I never needed a note. I had all 20 questions in my head, and I knew 
what the answers to the questions were right. because I was so well prepared. I wasn't surprised. And because I was so well prepared and because I knew how long it would take them to answer each question, I was able to structure each show as though it were a play, a one-hour play. Yeah. And I knew what my lines were going to be. I knew what they were going to say. I knew when they might follow up with something that it reminded them of, and I knew exactly what it was going to remind them of. So wow. I always got, my always got my 20 questions in, and I found very quickly that I was never intimidated by stars. I had spent several days with Arnold Palmer in October of 94 after I was hired, and we had a number of, you know, quite incredible experiences. I'll just tell you one briefly. The, the, the first morning we were together in Pennsylvania, the Trobe Country Club, where he was born and raised and, and owned the club at this point, we went down to the range, and it was closed because it was a Monday, and it was me and him and the club pro and the club champ and a local dentist who was a great player. And we stood on the range and watched Arnold hit five or six shots, and Arnold looked at the five of us, and he said, what am I doing differently? None of the other guys knew the answer, and he looked at me, and we had just done a two-hour interview, so he knew I knew a lot about him, and he said, well, you know everything about me, big shot. What am I doing differently? <laughs> and I said, I said, I'll tell you for $20. And he said, you're on. And I said, you have squared up your right foot and made it perpendicular to the line of flight instead of it being slightly flared. And he looked at me and he said, that's exactly right. And that was one of four or five things like that that happened on that particular day. Wow. And so by the, by the time we did our first interview a few months later, which we would do every January at the Golf Channel to kick off the year, he had a tremendous amount of respect for me. I was as comfortable in his company as I am with my own family. And I found that I did my best thinking of the day when I did those shows and that they almost went in slow motion, that I never felt rushed to do the next thing. I never worried about what to do next. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was slow motion, and I felt like I had an incredible amount of time to do whatever the best thing was. And I even used to have, and this sounds crazy, but it's true, I used to actually have out-of-body experiences where I would see me sitting a few feet away on the, on the little step that led up to the Golf Central news desk, which was only about 15 feet away, and I would actually sometimes catch me directing me and feeding me stuff from across the room. It was an incredible experience, wow. and that's I probably weird, had Peter. Peter, that's weird. Probably happened. That's weird. Yes, it is. That's Pro why he's one probably of the happened about. Ha probably happened about twenty times, and wow. so what I found was that the players had tremendous respect for me because once they watched me work, they realized how good I was at what I was doing, how much I knew about the players themselves, and how respectful I was, and I never put anybody in a tough position. Right. I never did anything that you would deem to be controversial, nor were there any things that were controversial at that time. You know, there, there was yeah. no gossip. There, there was no kneeling on the sidelines. There was none of those things to discuss. And so... My confidence grew, my comfort level grew, 
and out of thirteen hundred shows, there's probably thirty minutes that I would like back out of the thirteen hundred hours. And uh, the rest of it, I would just get in the car and I would say, nailed that, and I'd be as pleased with myself yeah, as could way. possibly be. So no, it was were, a combination, I was it was say a combination of circumstances shows. that made me comfortable yeah. and them comfortable with me. Yeah, that, they were just phenomenal shows. I remember them so well. That's why we're bringing to the fantastic uh, The Voice of Golf, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Peter Kessler. Peter, I want to ask you this. Should there, in your opinion... <laughs> be two sets of rules made, one for professionals and one for amateurs? Because, you know, most of the time the average weekend player ignores the rules and kind of does his or her own, you know, his or her own thing anyway. Well, I would say the only thing that I would like to see changed is how far the golf ball goes for the guys on tour. I don't think... I can remember a situation on a golf course almost my whole life that involved the rules that wasn't easily, you know, decided. You know, it's play it where you find it, play it as you find it, and if you can't figure out what to do, do what seems to be fair. That pretty much covers the rules, and um, I think the, the only rule that needs, the only thing that needs to be changed is the ball goes too far, the holes are too short. You know, Dustin Johnson went the entire season only hitting longer than a seven iron into a par four one time that he could remember for the whole year wow. nothing longer than a seven iron into a par four you know and i'm i'm and i'm praying to have seven irons <laughs> into uh, par fours, both, you know, instead of hitting hybrids so the golf courses are becoming obsolete at that level yeah. and they're having to be gimmicked up and that's why on a course that isn't championship length you know, major championship length now, the guys can easily shoot 20 under because they're hitting wedges right. all day. Exactly. And exactly. Exactly. So right. that's the old, that's the only thing I don't, I can't remember the, the last time that I had anybody confused on the golf course about a rule situation that we didn't re- resolve in two seconds. For yeah. sure. So I would say not two sets of rules, but roll the ball back. And it's not going well. You need a something this spell some aiming oil could do the trick but no one's inside and we need having a corporate or charity golf event backswing golf events can supply your tournament with personable professional golfers to entertain and fundraise on the golf course they can accommodate any size group whether it be three players to 500 they are your team from range lessons, beat the pro, and pro-am style roaming, they're making lasting memories one swing at a time. So make sure to check out BackswingGolfEvents.com or call us direct at 661-316-3093 and book your pros now. 